Hello, crime historians, and welcome back to another episode of A Crime Story. I'm your host, Kaylin Lois, a graduate student in international relations who lived abroad for, in France for two years. While abroad, I started hearing all of these insane crime stories that I never heard about. As a lifelong true crime addict with a fascination of how crime affects cultures and alters history, I decided to research these crimes and create a podcast to tell you about relatively unknown crime stories. Today I will be telling you about the shocking 1985 murders of Neville and June Bammer, their daughter Sheila Bammer Koffel, and her two sons, Nicholas and Daniel. From the start, it looked like an open and shut case of murder-suicide, but when Neville and June's son, Jeremy, started acting suspicious, things were not quite adding up. This is episode 24 of A Crime Story, England's White House Farm Murder. First, let us get a little rundown of the English criminal system, which the American system is modeled after. It runs on the common law system. Magistrate courts deal with the less serious criminal offenses. Youth courts are special magistrates courts, which deal with all of the most serious charges of those between 10 and 17 years old. And the crown court deals with the most serious offenses. For example, murder and rape, which are triable by judge and jury. Now, let's hop into the crime story because there is a lot to cover. White House Farm was originally built at the end of the 16th century near Tolson de Arcy in Essex, England. June's parents brought White House Farm in the early 1930s along with six nearby farms and established the company Osea Road to manage daily activities. During the summer of 1948, June's parents asked a nearby university to send students to help with that year's harvest. That's where Neville Bammer enters our story. June and Neville married in September 1949, and in 1951, they moved into White House Farm. The couple was well-liked around Tulsit to Arcee and were very active in their church. The couple were desperate to have a child, but by 1955, their efforts weren't working. This perceived failure caused June to have a nervous breakdown and seek psychiatric attention at a mental hospital. After treatment, they contacted the Church of England's Children's Society in 1957, and a baby girl who they named Sheila was placed in their care. June again experienced mental health issues related to clinical and or psychotic depression, and in 1958, she went to another psychiatric hospital where she received at least six electroshock therapies. June was said to have made a full recovery after this, and in the spring of 1961, June and Neville adopted another baby named Jeremy. When Sheila and Jeremy were seven years old, June and Neville explained their adoptions to them. Jeremy and Sheila grew up a privileged life and attended local school in Tolson de Arcy, where Sheila was pretty unpopular among classmates, but Jeremy was somewhat troubled. The decision was made to send Jeremy to boarding school where he struggled with issues of abandonment, and later he recalled having been sexually abused whilst at school. Sheila started to attend secretarial school in London after high school, but she wanted to be a model and her parents helped pay to have her portfolio created. While living in London at the age of 17, Sheila discovered she was pregnant by then 23-year-old Colin Caffill. 
June was mortified, and to save the reputation of the family, June decided that Sheila would get an abortion. This caused a rift in June and Sheila's relationship, and June started referring to Sheila as the devil's child. These words were branded into Sheila's brain, and she told a friend that she was scared of her mother. In 1977, Sheila discovered she was pregnant again, and Colin wanted to get married, but June would not allow them to get married in a church. Instead, Sheila and Colin got married by a registrar, but sadly, Sheila miscarried shortly thereafter. Her career started to take off and Sheila went on a two-month modeling gig in Tokyo, Japan. Upon returning home, she became obsessed with having a baby and being a mother. Luck happened and on June 27, 1979, after a difficult pregnancy, Sheila gave birth to twin boys. She named them Nicholas and Daniel. Never one to have luck last, Sheila learned that Colin had an affair while she was pregnant and Colin even brought his girlfriend to Sheila's 21st birthday party. The couple divorced in 1982. Sheila then worked odd jobs and was aided by social workers as a preventative measure because Sheila sometimes found motherhood as overwhelming. In the meantime, Sheila's brother Jeremy went to college for agriculture and upon his graduation, his father paid for a six-week trip to New Zealand. Jeremy discovered his bisexuality in New Zealand and he stole an expensive watch and smuggled back some cocaine to England upon his return. Jeremy's parents then gifted him a cottage near White House Farm where he grew cannabis. Parents also gifted him a car as well as 8% capital of the family company in Osea Road. Soon thereafter, Jeremy proposed to Suzette Ford, who was 10 years his senior, and his parents Neville and June disapproved. This caused Jeremy to break things off with his older woman, but he remained angry at his parents and acted out. He would provoke his mother by riding circles around her on the bicycle. He even started to wear makeup and provoke fights with his parents. He even broke into the offices at Osea Road and stole money to prove to his dad and the other owners that they needed better security. In 1983, Jeremy started dating Julie Muck. In 1983, Sheila's mental health took a sharp decline as she became easily agitated, paranoid, depressed, and would bang her head against walls. Sheila started seeing a psychiatrist, Hugh Ferguson, who had previously treated June in the past and was admitted for treatment. Dr. Ferguson diagnosed Sheila with schizoaffective disorder, which he later changed to schizophrenia. Sheila had complex feelings about evil versus good, which were some of the same issues that her mother had. She started calling her sons the devil's children. Sheila also believed that she had direct communication with God and that people were out to kill her. In early 1985, Sheila readmitted herself into a psychiatric hospital and her doctors prescribed a monthly injection of haloperdol. Sheila hated the injection because of the drug's sedative effect. On the first weekend of August 1985, Colin drove his ex-wife and then two six-year-old sons from London to White House Farm for a relaxing week. In the car, Sheila asked Colin to talk to her parents about her getting off or lowering the dose of the haloperdol, and his sons asked him to tell Grandma Bammer that they didn't want to say so many prayers during their stay. Colin dropped them off and Sheila was mad because he didn't talk to June or Neville about her medication. The housekeeper saw Sheila on August 5th and noticed nothing unusual. 
Two farm workers saw her the following day playing with her children and said that she seemed happy. On August 6, Jeremy came over to have dinner with his family. Now, we will never know what was truly said at that dinner because Jeremy is the only person alive who was at the event, but he stated that Neville and June asked Sheila to adopt the boys or to put them in daytime foster care. Colin, the boy's father, later said that the custody agreement was working out just fine and that he had a the children the majority at the time and it would have been odd for the Bammers to adopt the boys or to put them in foster. Jeremy said this suggestion angered Sheila and he left around 9.30 p.m. Barbara Wilson, the farm secretary, telephoned Neville at around that time and was left with the impression that she had interrupted an argument. She said Neville was short with her and seemed to have hung up on irritation, which was something that he had never done before. June's sister, Pamela Boutflower, phoned around 10 p.m. and she spoke to Sheila, who she noted was quiet, and then June, who seemed normal. According to court records, at 3.26 a.m. of Wednesday, August the 7th, Jeremy called the Clemsford Police Station on the direct line number as opposed to the 999 emergency call system and said, you've got to help me. My father has just rung me and said, please come over. Your sister has gone crazy and has got a gun. Then the line went dead. He explained that he tried to ring back his father at White House Farm, but that he couldn't get a reply. The police told Jeremy to go to the farm and wait for the police there. Three police officers passed Jeremy's car on their way to the farm. Jeremy's cousin Anne testified that Jeremy's car was normally a very, very fast driver, so this was weird that he was driving slow. Jeremy's car arrived at the farmhouse one to two minutes after the police vehicle. Jeremy told the officers about the telephone call with his father, adding that it sounded though as someone had cut him off. When asked if it was possible that his sister was inside with a gun, he said yes. He told the police that he did not get along with her. He asked if it was likely if his sister had gone berserk with a gun, and he replied, I don't really know. She's a nutter. She's been having treatment. When asked why his father hadn't called him and not the police, he said that his father was not the sort of person to get organizations involved preferring to keep things within the family. When asked why he had not dialed 999, which is like America's 911, Jeremy said he didn't think that it would make a difference to the time it would have taken for police to arrive. Jeremy told the officers that there was fire gums in the house and that Sheila knew how to use a gun, which was later disputed. At 7.30 a.m., the police decided to go into the house. In the kitchen, the police found the body of Neville Bammer slumped forward over a overturned chair next to the hearth so that his head was just above a coal scuttle. The police evidence showed chairs and stools upturned and broken crockery, sugar, and spots of blood on the floor. The ceiling light lampshade was also appeared to be broke. Police concluded that a violent struggle had taken place. On one of the surfaces, investigators found a telephone off the receiver and a large quantity of .22 shells beside it. Other searches of this room revealed that Neville's Bammer's blood-stained wristwatch under the rug and a piece of broken rifle butt on the floor. Upstairs, the bodies of June Bammer and Sheila laid on the floor of the main bedroom. Mrs. Bammer's heavily blood-stained body lay by the doorway where Sheila's laid by her parents' bed. 
The .22 rifle with the sound moderator and telescopic sights removed laid cradled on her body to her right hand resting upon it and a muzzle of the weapon just below her wounded neck. Immediately to her right resting on their upper right arm of the floor, authorities found June Bammer's Bible. Police found the bodies of Daniel and Nicholas Coffell in their beds in another bedroom. The murderer shot Neville Bammer eight times and also broke his nose. June Bammer was shot seven times, Daniel five, and Nicholas three. At first, the medical examiner stated that the scene looked like a murder-suicide, but hedged his conclusion after processing Sheila's body and noticed that she had been shot three times. The pathologist could not say one way or another whether Sheila had been murdered or had taken her own life. The police did not find gun residue on Sheila. She did not know how to reload a rifle, something given a number of bullets fired would have to have happened, and barefoot Sheila did not have blood on her feet. And all the blood found on Sheila appeared to have come from her. If Sheila was indeed the perpetrator of this horrific crime, it was a bloody mess and she would have had her blood as well as others all over her. Remember that her father had a broken bone and he stood 6'4", and if struggle had have occurred, Sheila would have had some bruising, which she didn't have. The physical evidence of a murder-suicide did not add up. On August 10th, 1985, members of the family who were far from convinced that Sheila had been responsible for the killings went to White House Farm with the executor of the state. During the afternoon, David Boutflower found a sound moderator together with the telescopic sights for the murder weapon at the back of the gun cupboard in the downstairs office. His father, his sister Anne Eaton, the executor, and the farm secretary all witnessed this recovery. They took the silencer to Anne Eaton's address for safekeeping, and that evening, members of the family examined it. They noticed that the gun blew on the surface had been damaged and that there appeared to be red paint or blood on it. They packaged the moderator and informed the police of the discovery. The police collected the gun two days later and on August 12th noticed a gray hair about an inch long attached to it. By the time the moderator had been delivered to the lab, the hair on the silencer was lost. Now clearly the police did not treat this crime scene very well. They never examined the Bible found near Sheila. A journalist writes that a hacksaw blade that might have been used to gain entry into the house lay in the garden for months. Officers did not take detailed notes. Those who had dealt with Jeremy wrote down their statements weeks later. They released the bodies only days after the murders and three of them were cremated. They only examined Jeremy's clothes a month later and 10 years later, all blood samples were destroyed from the crime scene. On August 14, 1985, authorities opened an inquest into the murders and the police gave notes on the murder-suicide theory. Jeremy's behavior became more and more concerning to the extended family as at the wake he joked with those present, but at the funeral he sobbed and appeared that he couldn't walk, but then he smiled. After the funeral, Jeremy went to Amsterdam to party and to smoke cannabis. He also began selling his family's belongings and said that the extended family wouldn't get anything. Jeremy tried to sell 20 nude photographs to, of Sheila for 20,000 pounds to the son 
and went on another overseas trip with his friend Brett, this time to Saint-Tropez. Julie Mugford, Jeremy's then-girlfriend, started talking to her friends about Jeremy's behavior. Julie stated a year before the murder that Jeremy stated that his parents had tried to run his life and that he didn't get along with his sister. He said he did not like that his parents paid for his sister's flat in London. Jeremy also said that his father was getting old, his mother mad, Sheila was mad as well, and in respect of the way the twins have been brought up, they were emotionally disturbed and unbalanced. Jeremy also told Julie he had seen copies of his parents' wills. Julie also testified that conversations about the killings were spoken in October to December 1984. At first, he spoke of being at the house for supper and then drugging the family, and then he intended on returning to the farmhouse on foot or on bicycle and burning the house down. Jeremy then realized that this would be difficult to burn the premises down, especially since it would destroy the valuables within the property. Therefore, he decided to shoot his family, and he told her that he had discovered that the catch on the kitchen window did not work and that he could gain access into the house that way. He spoke of Sheila being a good scapegoat because of her admission into the hospital during Easter 1985, and instead of that Afterwards, he would make it seem as Sheila had done it and then killed herself. According to Pamela Boutflower, who was June's sister, Sheila had never used a gun and did not consider her to be violent. Evidence given by Ann Eaton, who was June Bammer's niece, also stated that she had never seen Sheila with a gun and that she would not know one end of a barrel of a gun to another. Ann also added that Sheila had very bad hand-eye coordination. Other witnesses called during the trial also said that they had never seen her with a gun, except for an occasion where she had been photographed carrying one as part of a modeling assignment. Colin Cuffill, Sheila's ex, said that although there had been violent outbursts by Sheila during their time together, this had involved the throwing of pots and pans and the occasional striking of him. To his knowledge, she had never harmed the children or behaved violently towards anyone else. At the time, Sheila was taking medication, and this drug it was used to treat agitated states and that it has an antipsychotic and tranquilizing properties. It also has sedative side effects at the levels prescribed to her. And if the silencer was attached to the gun, there would have been no physical way for Sheila to have shot herself with the silencer on the rifle. After Julie's statements and physical evidence, police arrested Jeremy Bammer on September 8, 1985. The trial started a month later and the prosecution case argued that Jeremy, motivated by hatred and greed, left White House Farm after dining with his family. He re later returned to the farm on his mother's bicycle borrowed a few days earlier, cycling along a route that avoided main roads, and approached the farmhouse from the back. Jeremy entered the house through the downstairs bathroom window, taking the rifle with the silencer attached, and going upstairs and staging the scene to make it appear that Sheila committed the murders. The defense argued that Sheila killed everyone and that people misinterpreted Jeremy's words about the dislike of his family. That Julie had lied about Jeremy's confession, they said because he had betrayed her. No one witnessed Jeremy cycle to and from the farm, and he had no marks on him from the night in question to suggest that he had been in a fight. Police never found bloodstained clothing belonging to him.
The judge summed up to the jury. He suggested that three crucial questions needed to be answered. First, he made clear that there was not any order of, of importance, was whether or not they believed Julie Mugford if they were sure that she told the truth when it made that Jeremy had planned and carried out the killings. The second question was whether or not they were sure that Sheila did not kill the members of the family and then committed suicide. The third question asked whether or not the telephone call could have been made in the middle of the night from Neville Bammer to his son. If no such call existed, that it meant for no reason existed for Jeremy to have invented it save to cover up his responsibilities for the murder. On the 28th of October, after deliberating more than nine hours, the jury found Jeremy Bammer guilty of, a, by a majority, 10 to 2, the minimum required for conviction, and sentenced him to five life terms, with the recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. Jeremy Bammer tried to appeal this conviction on numerous occasions and maintains his innocence. In 2013, Jeremy and two prisoners, one of them being serial killer Peter Moore, appealed that decision and in 2013, the European Court's Grand Chamber ruled that keeping prisoners in jail with, the, with no prospect of release or review may have not been compatible with Article 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which prohibits inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment. In 2013, the Court's Grand Chamber reviewed in their favor, holding that there must be a possibility of release and review. There is a campaign to release Jeremy from jail, making arguments about the mishandling of the case and the silencer. Jeremy Bammer is currently one of 75 prisoners in the United Kingdom serving a life sentence behind bars. He is a Category A prisoner at HM Prison Wakefield in Yorkshire, where he works as a peer partner, helping other prisoners learn to read and to write, and even winning several awards for transcribing books in the prison's braille workshop this completes episode 24 of a crime story do you think jeremy bammer is innocent or do you think that sheila committed the crimes you can comment on a crime story instagram at a crime story pod where i will be posting images from today's story or you can even comment on a crime story podcast on facebook or at a crime story pod on twitter or even comment and see additional photos on a crime story podcast on youtube I'm also on TikTok under the name A Crime Story Podcast. My website is acrimestorypodcast.com where you can listen to the podcast as well as read a transcript of today's story underneath the blog tab. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please leave a review, it helps others find the show. Also, if you could tell a friend about a crime story, I would greatly appreciate it. I hope to see you next time on March 3rd where I will be covering a case from Croatia. You won't want to miss it. A Crime Story is created, hosted, researched, written, and edited by me, Kaylin Lois. Sources for today's episode can be found on my website, acrimestorypodcast.com. The artwork for the show is created by Sabrina Smith. The music is by Ross Budgen. Additional story editing is brought to you by my father, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to A Crime Story. Stay safe at home and abroad.